Welcome to Twice Five Miles Radio, fertile ground for conversations worth listening to and remembering. I'm your host, James Nave, always broadcasting first on WPVM LF Asheville 103.7, streaming online, WPVMFM.org. I'd like to thank Walter Parks for our theme song. Thank you ever so much, Mr. Parks. And we do love your music. If you'd like to know more about Walter Parks, walterparks.com, great place to start. If you'd like to reach out to me, Nave, at jamesnave.com. Nave is spelled N-A-V-E. Would love to hear from you. Thank you, Devine Dial, for managing WPVM-FM. It's a wonderful radio station, and we're so glad that you're there. And if any of you out there listening would like to learn more about WPVM-FM, website's really simple, wpvmfm.org. I met Roz Savage, my guest, at the Telluride Mountain Film Festival in Telluride, Colorado, a number of years ago. She was a speaker there, and she was giving a talk on ocean rowing. She was giving this talk because she had rowed the Atlantic Ocean solo and was planning on rowing the Pacific Ocean solo as well. Indeed, Roz went on to row the Pacific Ocean, and then she went on to the Indian Ocean and ended up with three oceans to her credit, solo, and made it into the Guinness World Book of Records because of it. She's also gone on to be an activist, an educator, a writer, and an engaged voice in in the environmental movement. So Roz has many things to talk about. She's based in the UK, so she and I are speaking uh, across the ocean, Atlantic Ocean. I'm in Taos, and she's in the UK. Not sure exactly what town Roz is in, but maybe she'll tell us that. So Roz Savage, welcome to Twice Five Miles Radio. It's a real pleasure to be here with you. And so lovely to see your face again, Nave. I know. Thank you. It's so good. I remember you. And I had had a couple of good times at the Telluride Mountain Film Festival. I know Arlene Burns, who's been on this show before, was the director of the Telluride Mountain Film Festival. And she recruited me to come up and help with emceeing and house managing. And I was emceeing a couple of the shows and that's how we ended up backstage leaning against the the wall chatting about life while you waited to go on or I was waiting to introduce somebody I might have even introduced you I don't really remember so Ross you have been engaged all of your life in things that warm your heart that bring you joy and I want you to tell us about why if it's not necessarily true all the time, why is that such an important thing? Is it really important for us to aspire, to enjoy ourselves, to reach to the horizon? What a great question. I would say that I very much enjoy my life now, but I've really had at least a life of two halves, you could say. I had a very conventional background, preacher's kid, law degree from Oxford. I was a management consultant slaving away in an office to make my bosses richer for 11 years before I (laughs) fully realised the error of my ways and set about completely turning my life around and reinventing myself. Thank heavens for that, (laughs) because I think I would have gone completely insane if I'd carried on working in the city of London for much longer. Yes, thank heavens for my early midlife crisis. 
So you say you grew up in a more conservative environment. When you were growing up, and I'm asking this question for myself and a lot of people who are listening, many of us remember our environments as being more conservative than we eventually end up being. When you were younger, did you have an inkling that you wanted to go do something beyond the conventions of the family that you were in? If not, when did that first inkling start to emerge in your psychology? Oh, when I was little, I suppose I wanted to be a writer. I was a real bookworm. I was probably girl least likely to row across oceans. I was rubbish at sport, was kind of small and uncoordinated. Um, I still am both of those things, actually. I was the bookworm and I, I wanted to be an author. Things shifted away from my parents. You know, they both had a clear sense of vocation. My mother went into the church when she was 16 and she went into the deaconess order, which at that time was like nuns. You weren't supposed to ever get married. Um, luckily for me, they changed the rules around that or else I wouldn't be here. Also, I suppose, luckily for my dad. So I rebelled against that by becoming this sort of arch materialist and like a, a true child of the Thatcher years. The flashy job and the flashy car and the big house and all the toys, because I imagined that that would make me happy. And it took me 11 very long years to realise, actually, it wasn't making me happy because I was lucky enough to not have spectacular financial success, but, you know, certainly to be comfortable enough to have a taste of that life while still feeling profoundly miserable with my self-esteem absolutely going down the drain and hating my job, those awful Sunday night blues, getting up at six o'clock to catch the commuter train to go into the office. And I realised belatedly that something just had to change. In particular, there was a, an exercise that I did from the Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Habit number two, begin with the end in mind. And the suggested exercise is that you write two versions of what people are going to say about you at your funeral. I think this exercise serves a number of really useful purposes. I was about 32 when I did this exercise. And at that age, you still feel kind of immortal. You sort of feel like you'll figure it out later on. And imagining my own funeral really made me realize that I didn't have forever. I knew in my heart I wanted to do work that felt more purposeful that actually resonated with my values and helped me to feel like I was making the world a better place in some way. And maybe some management consultants do feel like they're making the world a better place, but I certainly didn't. So I'd always start from where am I? What experience have I got? What qualifications have I got? And I would just come up with a load of totally uninspiring <laughs> options from there. But when you actually imagine how you want to feel about your life by the time you get to the end of it and reverse engineer from that, it just opens up much, much wider horizons. So doing that one exercise really put the writing on the wall as far as my so-called career was concerned. So when you did that exercise, did you surprise yourself? And how did that surprising revelation lead you from the office in London to being alone on the sea, two rows in hand and a boat underneath you? <laughs> yeah, it's not entirely obvious, is it? Well, it, 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 is a, it is one of those things where suddenly, you know, I'm in the office, I'm catching the, the underground, and then the next minute I'm, I'm above the sea, 
floating <laughs> on the water, which if you go all the way down to the bottom of the sea, you'll still find more earth. Bit of a career change, yes. It wasn't an immediate change because actually when I did do that exercise, I was frankly terrified of the consequences. It was really weird because on the one hand, as I was writing what I wanted people to be saying about me at my funeral, it felt really real. I was in the moment, as I was writing it down, I was totally in the flow. I could see it so vividly in my mind's eye, not that any of us particularly want to picture our own funerals. I sort of sat back having written all of that and just went, well, well, that's not possible. Like that just can't happen. It's so far removed from where I am and even who I am right now. The way that I describe it now in retrospect is I feel like every day when I got on that commuter train, my soul died and shriveled just a little bit more. And it felt like my soul was almost on its last gasp when I did this exercise. And when I asked this question, who do I want to be? How do I want to live this life? It was like my soul went, thank you. I thought you'd never ask. And that's why it just came flowing out of me. So even though I couldn't really see how I was going to completely change my life around, I had to, to get out of my gilded cage. I had to escape some of the things that really represented security to me, like a salaried job and a secure marriage and a rather nice home in West London um, and things like that, which are not easy to let go of. I think it really had to be this sort of subconscious process of this letting go. And I'm sure I caused my poor mother many sleepless nights around that time. And then to cut a very long story dramatically short, I went on my first adventure about three years after I did that exercise. I went traveling around Peru for three and a half months and for the first time saw the impacts of climate change. I went on a pilgrimage with a, a bunch of, uh, well, like 30,000 Peruvian indigenous people up to a glacier in the Andes. And they told me that every year they had to trek a bit further to get there because it was getting smaller and smaller. And back in 2003, I hadn't really got the memo about climate change. So I did my homework, found out about all of the awful things that we're doing to our precious earth and had found my purpose, basically, just had to do something to raise awareness. So I had the purpose, but I didn't have the project. Again, this crazy idea came from my soul or my subconscious or that magical place where poetry and music and all these other wonderful transcendent things come from this crazy idea ambushed me <laughs> uh, you know I knew how to row uh, and I'd met an ocean rower or two although it hadn't really sounded like that much fun I just went oh well that would be a great way to get people's attention so that I can talk about our environmental crisis so that's what I signed up for and I ended up becoming the first woman to row solo across three oceans you don't just go down to the local ocean rowing office and say, could I rent a boat? There's a lot more to it, I would think. How did you manage to figure out what to do in order to make an expedition? We're not really talking about going out to the lake and rowing around in a canoe. <laughs> Certainly not. First of all, my heart knew that this was exactly the project that I'd been looking for to further my purpose but the head had an awful lot to say about why it was a terribly bad idea. So I spent about a week going back and forth between the head and the heart. You know, the heart wants what the heart wants. And eventually it had persuaded the head that actually this 
did check all the boxes and it was possible that I could do this without actually getting myself killed. So I phoned up one of the ocean rowers that I knew and asked him what he would suggest as a first step. And as it happens, <laughs> for some reason, there is a disproportionately large number of ocean rowers in the UK. I don't know if it's our sort of maritime history or the fact that we just want to go somewhere warmer or, or what it is. But anyway, there are quite a lot of us around here. And so there was going to be an ocean rowing weekend down in Devon about two weeks hence. So that's where I went. And at that point, I think only about 200 people in the world had rowed across an ocean. About 13 had done it solo. And quite a few of those solo rowers and the other rowers were at this weekend in Devon. Having said that, I also learned that ocean rowers drink like fish. So <laughs> I came back from that weekend um, with a bit of a hangover, um, but also lots of business cards and phone numbers of people I could follow up with. And I just picked their brains relentlessly, read every book on ocean rowing, um, made myself a massive spreadsheet of all of the steps that it was going to take to do this. And that was a very big spreadsheet uh, because I was going to have to raise money, learn how to navigate, how to read weather charts, um, marine uh, communication technologies. Um, I was going to have to buy a boat, get it all fitted out with absolutely everything that I needed to support life for three or four months at a time at sea, being completely self-sufficient. And of course, get the fittest that I'd ever been in my whole life. That was a big to-do list. So when you were thinking about this boat or trying to figure out how to acquire a boat that would carry that much gear, how did you go about it? And the reason I ask a lot of people out there probably would have never thought about rowing across an ocean. So what kind of boat did you get? you have to row it. So you're doing it by hand. So there must be a lot of physics involved in this. And also it strikes me that you were finally able to use your, your education in a way that had some practical applications, like saving your life. <laughs> yes. Well, this is what I tried to tell myself uh, whenever I sort of got a bit wobbly about the scale of my ambition, looking at this massive to-do list, I would say, I have 11 years experience of project management. This is just a different kind of a project. So I'm just going to keep plugging away at this to-do list. So in terms of the boat, this was back in 2004 when I started preparing to launch in 2005. And back then, most of the boats were still the old marine ply ones. So this was like the sort of kit that you would get from, I can't think of American sort of home stores now, like Ikea would be the European flat pack kind of shop. They're not very glamorous boats. They look a bit like cars from the 1970s. It's that sort of aesthetic. And then I saw this beautiful new boat that was made out of carbon fiber and it was silver and it was curvy and it was just so gorgeous. And I sort of fell in love with it. The trouble was that it came with strings attached because it happened to belong to the guy whose company organizes the Atlantic rowing race. So he said, well, you can buy it, but you have to be in the race. Now, I didn't really want to be in the race. And I sort of went back and forth on it quite a lot. In retrospect, the downside was 
being in a race situation brought out my competitive instinct, <laughs> which, which I thought I'd got over, but clearly not. But the upside was that it gave me a very definite launch date. Like you have to go on the day that the race starts. And it also gave me a lot more sort of infrastructure around me. There would be people who would check my boat to make sure that I'd packed it well, that I had everything that I needed in my toolkit and my first aid kit and all of that. So that's the boat that I bought. Um, but when I bought it, it was just a shell. It didn't even have the hatches cut into the deck for all of the storage. So I had to really design all of the fixtures and fittings from scratch. And clearly this was something I'd never done before. I had rowed before, but it, before my rowing had been in the boats that you see in the Olympics or the Oxford Cambridge boat race, you know, the really skinny boats with eight people in them. And this one is obviously a very different creature. It's got two cabins, one for sleeping, one for storage. So it's like a very small yacht that you can row, essentially, because there's so much stuff that you have to have on there. So as you embarked on this project to develop all the necessary equipment and, and, and things that you needed to travel, and this was beyond your, your skill set by far, it seems like. Did you surprise yourself along the way as you developed this when you started to see your capacity expanding? And again, I ask this because a lot of people tend to have a low ceiling around what they think they can do and what actually they can deliver. How did that change you as you proceeded to develop this? Long before you ever launched, we haven't talked about transformation on the sea. This is just transformation prior to the launch. While I was still on dry land, I think it was fortunate that I hadn't given myself very long to get ready. 14 months on my own with my wonderful boat builders is not very long from a standing start to get ready for an expedition like this. But the advantage of staying so busy was that I didn't have too much time to get hesitant or get cold feet about it. I really just had to keep on running. I think I was in a somewhat delusional state of naive optimism. <laughs> you know, I felt so called to do this. It all felt so, quotes meant to be, that I remember going to some talks at the Ocean Rowing Society in London, which was in this sort of Dickensian old rat infested house. Um, uh, anyway, there were experienced ocean rowers talking about terrible things like when their fresh water got contaminated and they had to drink their own urine, terrible sores on their backsides and just all these dreadful things. And I was just like, oh, well, I'm sure that's not gonna happen to me. <laughs> there is something to be said for having enough naive optimism to get yourself into something and too much stubborn pride to get yourself back out of it once you've started. If I'd really had any idea what I was letting myself in for, <laughs> I, I don't think I would have got very far at all. Again, just that, that massive sense of purpose and calling. Just when I ran into barriers, which were actually usually financial barriers, I kept running out of money. Some money would show up from somewhere and I would take it as a sign that I was meant to carry on. Uh, so there were lots of wobbles along the way, but that was the easy part. <laughs> So when you finally launched on this competition, how many yeah. people were in the competition and did you all launch at the same time or did you launch from different locations? Did you know where the other people were or were you out there on your own rowing and hoping to be the first one to arrive? Well, there were 26 crews, but most of them were crews of four people or two people. 
there were only two solos in the race. There was an international oarsman and me. I should say, I'm not the kind of build that people generally imagine when they think of rowers, because most rowers are over six foot tall, and that includes the women. And I'm five four on a good day. And, you know, I'm, I'm not <laughs> particularly athletically built. You know, I've got curves. So I was never really in the running to win the race. I was just hoping not to embarrass myself too badly. We did all leave from the same place. We left from um, La Gomera in the Canary Islands, just off the coast of Africa. They set us off with the fastest boats first. So they set me off last. And basically, I, I didn't see anybody the whole time because rowers face backwards. Even if they'd been close enough for me to see them, I was the last person to leave and I'm facing back towards where I've come from. No, it's not like we all got together at the end of a hard day's rowing to have a, a nice little chat around a, whatever the ocean equivalent of a campfire is. No, it, was, it was an extremely solitary experience. So when you were experiencing this kind of thoughtfulness as you were rowing along, when did you start to realize the profound changes that must have happened on, on this journey? Did, did you have changes in the very beginning or were you just bored with yourself and you're out there all alone on the sea and rowing along with nothing to do but look at the endless water, water everywhere, not a drop to drink? <laughs> well, everything started going sideways pretty quickly, actually. If you remember, 2005 was the year of Hurricane Katrina and also Rita and Wilma. And there were actually 28 named storms that year, which makes it still the worst year on record for storms in the Atlantic. So it was exceptionally rough, practically the whole way across. And things started breaking. All four of my oars broke before I got halfway across. The camping stove broke after the first two weeks. So no hot food after that. Might have been some human error involved in that one. My solar panels weren't able to generate enough electricity because it was really overcast for the first month. That had to save the electricity for the vital things like the GPS and the satellite phone and the water maker. And then after the sun came out, I was like, oh, brilliant. Now I can use the stereo. Turned it on and it worked for about two days and then stopped. And I opened it up and it's just completely rusted to hell on the inside ended up spending the whole voyage with nothing but my own thoughts to entertain me. And that actually, that was the most brutal aspect of it. Having been so used to all of this stimulation, you know, all of this input that we get when we're on dry land, the 14 months before I set out, I've been running hither and yon, getting everything ready for this. And then suddenly I'm sitting there rowing for 12 hours a day, Oh, I also got tendonitis in my shoulders um, really early on. Struggled with that pretty much the whole way across. So I'm in quite a lot of pain as well. And the saltwater sores on my backside, which you don't need to know too much detail about that, but they hurt. So I was not happy <laughs> in short. <laughs> and actually there was this massive sense of indignation. <laughs> this, this rage at life, you know, I was like, you told me to do this. <laughs> you called me. I thought it was going to be this wonderful process of enlightenment. Dolphins and whales are going to be frolicking around my boat and it was all going to be a beautiful experience with unicorns and rainbows. <laughs> and, and it was not. It was absolutely anything but. 
disappointment is what happens when uh, expectation meets reality. And my expectations met reality with a big crash bang wallop. So instead of unicorns and, and dolphins, you had a sore backside, broken paddles, no music, and only yourself to entertain yourself as you as you rode along. I'd like to, on that note, pause for just a moment to tell people what's happening here. So I wanted to say to everybody listening that you are tuned in to Twice Five Miles Radio, fertile ground for conversations worth listening to and remembering. I'm your host, James Nave. My guest today is Roz Savage. We're talking about transformation on the sea and on the land. Um, I'd like to thank Walter Parks for our theme song, WalterParks.com. If you're interested in Walter's music, Thank you, Davine Dial, for all the good work you do at WPVM-FM. We really do appreciate everything that you do to keep the show on the air. All the shows at WPVM-FM, low-power, non-profit, community radio, it belongs to all of us. If you out there listening would like to know more about WPVM-FM, the website's very simple, WPVMFM.com. Org. You can go there and learn about what we, we do in the community radio world. And you can also support us with a little donation. The donation button is at the top of the fold on the website. And it's e easy to do, and we do appreciate your help, whatever you can afford to, to give. We most especially appreciate your attention. That's really payment enough, and thank you ever so much for that. Twice Five Miles Radio. Always airing first on WPBM LP, Asheville, North Carolina, 103.7, streaming online globally, WPVMFM.org, the voice of Asheville, heard all over the world. Want to tell you, we're sponsored by Twice Five Miles Guides, the stuff nobody teaches you, little guidebooks that will help you get your creative work over the finish line. And Speaking of getting something over the finish line, we're right in the middle of a race, an ocean-going race with Roz Savage, the story of her race. And, and her paddles had broken and her backside was sore. And, and she was coming into a spiritual transformation that she didn't expect. So, Roz, coming back to this, when you started to realize that transformation was something that was happening for you and yet you were miserable in this transformation that you may not have claimed yet at what point in the movement across the first ocean of the three when i met you in telluride you had finished the atlantic journey and you were there speaking about it and you were certainly talking about climate change and and all the activist work you were doing at what point in that movement across the atlantic amongst all of those storms did you start to think, hmm, this transformation might be happening? And when it did, how did that power your resolve? You know, when you sit with a problem for long enough, and I didn't have anything else to think about other than my problems, you do create, I suppose, fertile ground for those aha moments. When you realize that if you can't change your reality, you're going to have to change your attitude about your reality. So there were some particular insights. An example would be one day I'm rowing along and my inner dialogue is all extremely negative and I'm just, you know, grumbling away to myself inside about how uncomfortable everything is, shoulders hurting, backside hurting, everything's lurching around all of the time, I'm getting soaked. And I'm like, oh, it's just so uncomfortable. And then the penny dropped and I remember that 
in the run up to the row when people had asked me why I was doing this, as well as mentioning the environmental mission, I would say something glib like, and I want to get outside my comfort zone. And I suddenly went, oh, duh, like getting outside my comfort zone is going to be uncomfortable. That's sort of the point of it all. So actually from that point on, or at least for the, the rest of that rowing shift, um, the discomfort wasn't something to be cursed. It was actually something to be embraced because it showed that I was genuinely so far outside my comfort zone. It wasn't funny. So just little insights like that, that I would jot down in the back of my logbook, knowing that I was picking up these pearls of wisdom appropriate for the ocean um, along the way. I'm jumping ahead a little bit here. For me, a lot of the work was once I got back to dry land, was making sure that I didn't leave that wiser version of myself out on the ocean because I knew I'd learned a lot. And towards the end of the voyage, I had really started to identify not as just a burned out management consultant, but actually as an adventurer and ocean rower. And I wanted to hold on to that new identity and not just leave it out on the water. So I had to really kind of do the integration work afterwards to make sure that it became who I am rather than just something that I'd done. So obviously you did make it across and I don't know if you won the won the prize or not or if you came in <laughs> first or last. And you came in you, first in the solo female category, being the only one. Well, by golly, that's it. That's <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's a wonderful, wonderful thing. You finished the, the journey and you you landed. And now I also know that when I met you, you had a compelling story and, and you were more than willing to tell it. And we were in Telluride above 10,000 feet. We were not at sea level anymore. And, you know, when you told the story, everybody at Telluride loved it. And a lot of people connected with you. And then you went on from there to continue your work as an activist in the environmental movement. And then you launched yourself across the Pacific. And by the time you launched yourself across the Pacific, technology had advanced a bit more. You had more communication opportunities, a little more wired up, if you will. And that's when I started to follow your trip. And then from the Pacific, when you concluded that, you went to the Indian Ocean, which if I recall your post, by then you were posting regularly you had a very tough time in the Indian Ocean as well, and yet you did finish all three. One of the things I remember, and I don't remember where it was, but one of your your posts, you talked about how fascinated you were to see the flying fish sailing over the boat. And why I remember that detail is to this day a a wonder to me. Maybe I (laughs) like the idea of flying fish, who knows? But what drove you? And then as you were starting to move into the activist part, which is now something you are continuing with, how did that start to to work for you? And how did that momentum build? And how were you able to communicate your message to the to the cynics of the world when you bumped into somebody who doubted this idea of climate change? What what were you able to say? And did your ocean rowing experience give you credibility in their eyes? Um, Oh, a lot to unpack there. I just want to briefly loop back to the wildlife. um, Yeah, take take this as you please and work with it however you want. I just loaded it up so you could have some fun. (laughs) Thank you. Um, 
I feel very fortunate some of the amazing things that I've seen on the ocean um, as well as the flying fish. Um, I did see dolphins and whales and sharks including a lot of feeding frenzies especially in the western Pacific. Rainbows, moonbows, uh, sunfish, you know just amazing things and been to amazing places that I would never have been to other, otherwise. So I feel incredibly lucky to have had all of those experiences. I did also just briefly want to mention that um, it continues to not be um, smooth sailing. My first attempt on the Pacific ended up uh, with me being airlifted into the back of a US Coast Guard helicopter, which clearly had not been the plan. And I didn't call out the Coast Guard, somebody else did. I want to sort of emphasise that there were a lot of trials and tribulations along the way, and I never found it easy. Even on the Indian Ocean, my third ocean, which took me five months, completely non-stop alone at sea without seeing a human being or dry land. It was hard. It was always hard. But I always had this real motivation that came from the importance of our earth and the importance of uh, us taking better care of it, being better stewards of it. So in many ways, the, the plan worked. The intention behind the rowing was to give me a voice as an environmental advocate. And I was fortunate enough to be invited to speak at all sorts of events. Um, at TED Mission Blue, which is a special ocean themed TED where spoken in front of a fairly distinguished audience, spoke at John Kerry's Our Oceans event after Leonardo DiCaprio and before Barack Obama. Lots of these opportunities to get my message across. And the message has undergone an evolution over the years. So I started doing the rowing in 2005. At first, Another aspect of my naivety, <laughs> in addition to having no appreciation of just how hard it was going to be to row across an ocean, I also thought that because when I'd heard about our environmental crisis, I thought, well, this is terrible and I will change my behaviour. And I looked around and saw other people behaving in ways that didn't seem to be very good for the planet. I went, oh, they clearly don't know. And if I just tell them, then everything will change. <laughs> As, as we now know, it doesn't work that way because actually we're completely embedded in these structures and these systems, these societies, this economy especially, that doesn't give us the incentive to do the right thing. When it's that much cheaper to buy something plasticky made in China than to buy something handcrafted by a local artisan, when it's that much cheaper to hop on a plane than it would be to take the, the train somewhere, it's very difficult for people to do the right thing. So I hope that I've matured as an activist, that I'm a bit less naive now. And actually I'm putting a lot of my energy over the last few months into a new complementary currency that I think has the potential to be a game changer. It's still in its infancy, it's based on a completely different value system than our conventional economy. It rewards the behaviours that help to regenerate the planet and build community. It encourages 
people to get involved in the governance. It's completely decentralized. It, it's not at all hierarchical. Nobody owns it. It is governed by its people for its people. It's called Seeds and I'm in the process of becoming an ambassador for that. I'm really more excited and optimistic than I've been in a long time because we do respond to incentives. <laughs> it, it makes sense to respond to incentives. I know there's a lot of conscious capitalism out there. There are some wonderful companies really trying to redress the balance and, you know, all power to their elbows. And I hope they, they carry on doing that. And I do also think that there is a role for a parallel economy. It's not trying to replace the existing one. It's just trying to be the, the yin to the yang of the mainstream economy. Seeds. Mm-hmm. How does that work? I'm, I'm very curious I'm, that I'm, not the only one listening with the curiosity. Well, I should say, I'm only about three months into my seeds journey, so I'm not claiming to be an expert, but I have been diving in deep, as, as is my tendency when I really get enthusiastic about something. Uh, so it is a cryptocurrency, but it is explicitly trying not to be used like Bitcoin, because Bitcoin sort of ended up being used largely for speculation. And the people who were rich enough to uh, invest heavily in it have become even richer. And one of the other values that Seeds is really trying to promote is equality. So they have built in checks and balances that somebody can't become like a whale, I believe is the the technical phrase for somebody who owns a disproportionate share of the wealth. So it is a cryptocurrency. At the moment, it's still in its sort of ramping up phase. You can apply for grants from them for projects that are regenerative to the ecosystem and to community. It's a very beautiful and and very committed community, but it's still tiny. There's like, you know, in the hundreds of us at the moment rather than the thousands. But even since the start of this year, I've seen a real uptick in interest. I do feel like there's a shift happening I think that Seeds is both a reflection of that and also a facilitator of a change that's happening. The the last four years particularly, I think, have been very interesting in surfacing a lot of what's wrong with the world in terms of inequality, whether that's economic or racial or whatever. It's also very much highlighted the need for healing of the earth and healing of the divisions between people. And those things sort of had to be surfaced. It has been a fairly painful process and I think that pain might continue for a while longer. And we are actually, yes, speaking the day after the scenes, shall we say, at the Capitol in Washington, DC. So we live in interesting times. You're quite right. We we are in a new arena. And I, I, I worked for years with a woman named Julia Cameron who wrote a book called The Artist Way. And Julia and I worked many, many years together. And I've been teaching Artist Way classes for a long time. I still do it. And I'm getting ready to present another one called It's Never Too Late to Begin Again, based on Julia's book that she and her collaborator, Emma Lively, just wrote a couple of years ago. And the book was originally written for retirees and other creative souls. And now I'm thinking that the, that this disruption that we're experiencing, the 
the pandemic, as well as all of these other things that are going on politically, culturally, and most especially environmentally. We have all collectively been retired. We've moved out of our office, been moved out of our offices, literally back to our homes. In this work that you're doing with SEEDS, how will this help people practically move into their new retirement? And I use the word retirement in the, in the best sense. We retire from one thing, and then once that retirement happens, we begin anew. So it's like the spring coming now. Mm-hmm. The spring is coming, and we're going to begin anew. It's in Julia's book, as it's titled, It's Never Too Late to Begin Again. And of course, that point is now. How will seeds help us with all of this? I just want to mention the website is joinseeds.com, just before I forget to mention Joinseeds.com. Yeah. One of the objectives is to create the possibility of a universal earned income in seeds. So there's been a lot of talk around universal basic income. The point here is a lot of people, I think, have a sense of purpose and it can be very hard to make a living out of your purpose. What the heart yearns to do is not always something that our conventional economy is going to reward us for. So that is one of the the objectives. There's also an emphasis on local to improve our, our resilience, especially around regenerative agriculture. A really key thing because we know that we're facing a soil crisis at the moment. And I don't want to get too doomy gloomy about that, but clearly things need to be done in a very different way. When someone engages in the joinseeds.com movement, people who might be interested in it, as I am, I do want to make a difference. I want to do something that is meaningful creatively, as well as make a contribution to the whole so that I'm not taking away. I'm giving my gifts rather than trying to acquire. And so I'm curious how this kind of economy would contribute to that goal? Yeah, I would say at this point in the seeds timeline, it's for the pioneers who believe that we do need economic reform. So at the moment, the main way of participation is by jumping into the governance, by being an ambassador for seeds. Once it actually goes live and becomes a currency that's in more widespread circulation, it will be a currency that you can use to buy goods and services from particularly regenerative companies. You get more value for your money when you are dealing with socially beneficial companies rather than degenerative organisations. So at the moment, it's more in the development phase, but we are already exchanging and trading. Like, for example, I also have a women's organization called The Sisters, which believes that in this brave new world that we're going to be creating, we do need a better balance. Not so much between men and women, but more between masculine and feminine. And clearly men can also embody healthy feminine qualities. But I do think women have a little bit of a head start. And I can't help but feel that if we had more women in positions of power, then we would probably have a more peaceful and regenerative world. I applied on behalf of the sisters to get a grant in seeds that we're now starting to use in our internal sisters economy 
to show our appreciation for each other, to um, pay our executive director, and to, again, be rewarding the behaviours that are pro-social and pro-environment. If we want to see balance in the world at large, then we start by creating balance within ourselves. Between that sort of healthy, masculine, protective, providing, warrior when need be kind of energy and the, the feminine, befriending, nurturing, collaborative dynamic. So I think that this is already happening. We're not necessarily seeing it amongst our political leaders at the moment. When I look at our younger people, I feel really hopeful that the gender lines are much more blurry. They're much less clearly defined. And it seems to be much more acceptable to define yourself with your own unique blend of feminine and masculine balance. There's never been a better time for self-definition to craft a career based on what your purpose is, to be the person in all your beautiful uniqueness. And I'm really curious and excited about the future to see that develop and blossom. Some of the younger people are using the pronoun they to describe themselves rather than he or she. People in my circle, the older crowd, they resist that idea. They think, well, what does that mean? But the more I've thought about that, I have come to think that's a revolutionary way of focusing on what is actually true, the plurality of each of us and how much we possess inside of ourselves. And the plural pronoun they seems so much more accurate and comprehensive than he or she in respect to what's going on inside of LaSalle. Very poetically put, yes. And I hope that something else that is going to emerge is a sense of real connection. For a long time, we've identified as isolated individuals and it's, it's us against the world. I'm starting to see a, a shift towards greater connection between humans and humans and also humans and the other parts of nature. I've just read three books in a row on different aspects of intelligence in nature. And it seems that with every passing year, scientists are finding more and more intelligence everywhere, like lichens that we thought were the most boring things ever. And now we find out that they're this amazing blend of a fungus and an alga. And, you know, it's, it's just um, mind-blowing in so many ways. And what we haven't appreciated is really that web of life, that when we damage and pollute and exploit and extract, we're not just damaging something out there, we're actually damaging something in our own selves and our own souls. And I don't think that we can solve our environmental problems from the level of consciousness that created them, that we do actually need that connection consciousness where we recognize that we are on the ultimate closed loop system of planet Earth and there is no way, this is all we've got, this is it, and we better take better care of it. Which I would like to say is an even more poetic, expanded version of they. I refer to myself maybe as they rather than he or she. 
And yet when we do say they, and we think of all of the creatures out there in one whole, that's a dramatic, beautiful idea. They, the plural, all of us as one. So beautifully put, yes. We're all in this together. We are this amazing interconnected plurality and we all live or die together. And we're on the land and on the sea and we're on this earth and we're in in the universe. And you and I have been in this great conversation for the last hour. And before we go, would you please remind people how they can learn more about what you do and the work that you are involved in? I know joinseeds.com is one way to connect with you. If someone wanted to find out more, what would they do? They could contact me via my website, which is Roz, R-O-Z, um, or Z, as I would say, rossavage.com. And I have a contact form there. And I also blog there every Thursday, as I did this morning, on whatever I'm interested in that particular week. If you want to find out more about the sisters, the website for that is thesisters.global. And that's my women's organization, a group of women committed to creating a more peaceful and sustainable future. So rozsavage.com, R-O-Z-Z, joinseeds.com, and thesisters.global. Oh, don't you just love that you can get thesisters.global and not even bother with any of the other COMs or ORGs? Thesisters.global. Maybe I should have gone for the sisters.cosmos. I don't know if that's I don't know if that's a thing. <laughs> it's it's fine. So so Ross Savage, thank you ever so much for taking the time to be with us. And I really do appreciate your insight, your thoughts. Thank you for telling us a bit about the ocean and then taking us into the bigger ocean of change and universal awareness. This has been my absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. And there you have it, my friends, a good conversation with Roz Savage, social activist, environmentalist, and ocean roar. When Roz was talking about rowing across the Atlantic, the Pacific, and the Indian Ocean, I neglected to ask her about seasickness. And the reason I bring that up now is because I have been known to get seasick sitting in a canoe on a glassy lake. So there's something about canoeing around and water on a flat surface or even a rough surface like the sea that undoes me a bit. And I have been seasick in the ocean as well. So I don't think I could possibly row across a large unruly body of water without getting seasick more than once. So that said, I still love the idea of the sea and the freedom and seafaring around the world. Which brings me to an old poem that's in public domain written by John Maysfield, titled Sea Fever. And when I was talking to Roz about sailing the oceans, I thought about this poem. And also you can use this poem as a, as a metaphor for going almost anywhere, getting out in life, pushing yourself forward toward the horizon, whatever that horizon includes, the sea or dry land, or maybe even looking to the sky to the stars, going beyond the stars that lie atop the western horizon. Anyway, Sea Fever by John Macefield. I'd like to read it for you now, just because it's a fun little poem. If you were in the eighth grade and had an opportunity to have a little bit of poetry exposure when you were in middle school, you probably heard this poem read. I don't know if it's in the school textbook now. It's a rather old poem. 
And as I said, it's titled Sea Fever by John Maysfield. I must go down to the seas again, to the lonely sea and the sky. And all I ask is a tall ship and a star to steer her by. And the wheels kick, and the wind's song, and the white sails shaking, and a gray mist on the sea's face, and a gray dawn breaking. I must go down to the seas again, for the call of the running tide is a wild call, and a clear call that may not be denied. And all I ask is a windy day with the white clouds flying, and the flung spray and the blown spume, and the seagulls crying. I must go down to the seas again, to the vagrant gypsy life, to the gull's way and the whale's way, where the wind's like a whetted knife. And all I ask is a merry yarn from a laughing fellow rover, and a quiet sleep, and a sweet dream when the long trek's over. That was Sea Fever by John Maysfield. And now I'm reminded of the opening of another poem titled Dover Beach by Matthew Arnold. It has the sea in it, so I'd like to offer that to you as well. The sea is calm tonight. The tide is full. The moon lies fair upon the straits. Out on the French coast the light gleams and is gone. The cliffs of England stand, glimmering and vast out in the tranquil bay. Come to the window. Sweet is the night air. Only from the long line of spray, where the sea meets the moon-blatched land, listen. You hear the grating roar of pebbles, which the waves draw back and fling, and at their return up the high strand, begin and cease, and then again begin, and with tremulous cadence slow, Bring the eternal note of sadness in. And that poem by Matthew Arnold titled Dover Beach goes on and on and on. I just love the way he describes the sea coming in and going out in the poem, although he does leave us on a little bit of a note of sadness. And I suppose you might have a feeling of sadness if you go to the beach alone and you're trying to contemplate life's great existential problems. That said, you could also go to the sea, and I imagine you've done this as well. Go to the sea and find happiness, find joy in the rhythm of the waves washing against the sand, and maybe even rolling over your bare feet as you walk down the, the beach strand. Of course, I'm imagining the Carolina coast, South Carolina or North Carolina, and when you go to the coast in the Carolinas, you really can just walk for miles and miles on flat, flat sand. Now, if you live on the West Coast and you go to the beach, you will discover rather quickly that you have a lot of obstacles in the way, like logs and rocks and, and other things like that. I remember the first time I went to the Pacific Ocean, I was very excited to see the, the big Pacific and I, of course, had the southern beach strands in mind. So when I arrived at the coast of California, just north of San Francisco, uh, above Marin County, headed up north on Highway 1, somehow I managed to work my way over there, I was really surprised to find the cliffs and the cold air. And when I put my 
four little feet in the sea. It was it was icy, icy cold. So I had a quick change of perspective around what the sea on the west coast was like when it enters the shore and the sea on the east coast. But as Ross Savage said in the conversation that we just had, it's all one, really. So even though we call it the Pacific, which Ross sailed across, or rode across, or the Atlantic, which Roz also rode across. I've never been to the Indian Ocean. Even though we call it the Pacific, the Atlantic, or the Indian Ocean, it's all really one body of water. If you were to interview the sea anywhere in the world, it would think of itself as one. We are the ones who have named it. It probably has another name for itself. Perhaps the sea is a thinking, intelligent being. I don't know. Anyway, my friends... Thank you for listening to these thoughts on the sea and listening to what Roz had to say about the sea and listening to this show, which is Twice Five Miles Radio, fertile ground for conversations worth listening to and remembering. I'm your host, James Nave. Always airing first on WPVM LP, Asheville, North Carolina, 103.7, streaming online globally. WPVMFM.org, the voice of Asheville, heard all over the world. If you would like to reach out to me, Nave at jamesnave.com is a great place to start. I would love to hear from you. What's your story? Where are you in the world? Do you get seasick? Do you like to row? Would you row across the Atlantic Ocean solo? Have you ever walked the Appalachian Trail solo? What do you do with other people or what do you do alone? love to hear your story also like to thank walter parks for our theme song walterparks.com if you would like to know more about walter's music which is playing right now below my voice so walterparks.com thank you davine dial for all that you do for wpvm fm and community radio everywhere we really appreciate your work and if you're listening there are other wonderful shows you can tune into on wpvm fm there's lester the nightfly with pj ewing Jazz on a Summer Afternoon with Sebastian Matthews, The Empowered Whistleblower with Don Westmoreland, and the always popular Blaine's World with Blaine Greenfield. Finally, you can listen to Walter Parks' Hymns and Hollers every Sunday morning at 10 a.m. Walter Parks is one of our contributors as well as giving us the theme song. So I really do appreciate you listening to WPVM-FM and, and Community Radio wherever you are. I am so appreciative of your time, your energy, and, and your support. And please do tune in next time to Twice Five Miles Radio. Until then, I'll catch you on that turnaround. Thank you ever so much.